Reflections on Shakespeare's The Tempest by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 In Act 2, Scene 1, the king and the nobles and their attendants are gathered part of the island. And, of course, now we have not Ferdinand distraught over the death of his father, but his father distraught over the death of Ferdinand. He thinks his son has been killed. And he is desolate, as Ferdinand was. He has no Ariel to bring him this subtle, mysterious message. He has instead the nobles, uh, Sebastian and uh, Antonio. But for the good news, he has Gonzalo and Adrian, primarily Gonzalo. And they try very much to to cheer him up, to, to restore some kind of optimism, you see. None of the subtlety of, of Ariel with respect to uh, Ferdinand. Here, instead of that, instead of that paradoxical presentation of the mystery, what we have is the cynics and the romantics. That's what happens when the paradox falls apart. You get the cynics and the romantics. The paradox is something uh, more shocking than the cynics understand. And more, and more redemptive than the Romantics realize. But here we don't have that, so we have to rely on these. So the first we hear, we hear from the uh, Romantics, Adrian and Gonzalo. To make uh, matters simple, I'll just refer to Gonzalo's. Gonzalo, trying to cheer up uh, Alonso, says, "Had I a plantation of this isle, my lord, and were the king on it, what would I do?" In the commonwealth, I would, by contraries, execute all things. That is to say, I would do it exactly the opposite of the way that we've always done it back in, in uh, Naples. You see, we, we, we've got it all wrong. We're out now on this island, paradisal island, and uh, we have a grand opportunity for a utopia. Now, in Shakespeare's time, you know, there had been a fair amount of geographical exploration, and uh, news was coming back, obviously passing through various rumor mills about what was out there. And uh, a lot of it was turning into um, the mythology of the lost garden. So there was a tremendous sense of, gee, there are these people out there living as though in Eden. No, there are no rules, no regulations. They're not encumbered with all of this, the, with all of the claptrap of civilization and so on. And Gonzalo has gotten wind of that sort of idea, and he's speaking it. He says, hey, look at here. We're, we have an opportunity to start all over again. In the commonwealth, I would, by contraries, execute all things, for no kind of traffic would I admit, no name of magistrate, letters should not be known, riches, poverty, and use of service, none, contract, succession, born, bound of land, tilth, vineyard, none, no use of metal, corn, or wine, not, or oil, no occupation, all men idle, all and women too, but innocent and pure, no sovereignty. And Sebastian, the cynic, says, yet he would be king on it. And on the latter end of his commonwealth forgets the beginning. He started out by saying, and if I were king of this place, and then he cuts away everything, everything below the king in the hierarchy, thinking that the, hier- that the whole system will hold in place on thin air. Once I'm, once I'm king, we can do away with all of the rest of it. In a certain way, he, 
I, I, I'm sympathetic with Gonzalo. For instance, I can sit here sometimes and say to you, the culture is falling apart. Now, save for the fact that I am managing at the moment I say that to be standing on one little piece of it that is more or less intact, I would fall on my knees when I say that. That's a very frightening thing. We can only say it without a tremor in our voice if some version of it is still holding in place in our immediate vicinity. So Gonzalo is, it has his head filled with this myth. But his own experience has been of a well-ordered universe. It's only someone who's convinced of the ontological rationality of the universe who can imagine this with impunity. He's, he's convinced his own experiences that, the, that basic civilities always remain. So we can dispense with all of those things which, which a, a, a more realistic person would, would uh, understand play a role in the civility. But I'm interested in something even, even more to the point here. What Shakespeare has done is something very, I think, uh, amazing. Montaigne had written essays that were translated into English in 1602 or 3. This play's written 1611. And Montaigne can be regarded as one of the sources of, uh, of the humanist uh, sense of things. And in those essays, there was an essay generated by Montaigne's meeting uh, with two Brazilian natives that were brought on a tour of France. And he met with these two natives who, who comported themselves with great dignity. And he was truly impressed by their, by their inherent regality, you see. And he wrote this essay. Now, it's very similar to the kind of thing, it's, it's the, it's the, in a way, it's the intellectual origin of the noble savage idea. And it became, it spread out from here. In a sense, we're almost right at the genesis of that idea. All we have to do is get rid of all of these all of this contraption and we will be in the Garden of Eden again. Let me quote from the uh, tra English translation of Montaigne that Shakespeare read before we get too far away from Gonzalo's speech and you will recognize that Gonzalo's speech is copied from Montaigne in some places word for word. Montaigne says this, speaking of the, of the tribe from which these two uh, Brazilian natives came. Montaigne says, It is a nation that hath no kind of traffic, no knowledge of letters, no intelligence of numbers, no name of magistrates, nor of politics superiority, no use of service, of riches or of poverty, no contracts, no successions, no dividances, no occupation but idle, no respect of kindred but common, no apparel but natural, no manuring of lands, no use of wine, corn, or metal, the very words that import lying, falsehood, treason, dissimulation, covetousness, envy, detraction, and pardon were never heard of amongst... You can recognize, can't you, Gonzalo's speech? You know exactly where Shakespeare got it. Now, Shakespeare is about to show how shallow Gonzalo's understanding of things are. He's doing it less than 10 years after the English world was introduced to Montaigne and was captivated by this sensibility. 
And as we know, it's played an important part in, in uh, the history of Western humanism ever since. It continues, this sensibility continues to linger on. It is, there's no fundamental problem here. You see, the, we're not fallen creatures, cut it out. We're just, we, we're just encumbered with all this civilized uh, contraption. It's a, an appealing myth. Let me read to you from the Encyclopedia Britannica about the Tupanamba tribe, which is the tribe from which these two uh, men had come. Okay? First of all, I'll read, the, uh, I'll read something that will exonerate Montaigne somewhat. It's this. Ordinary Tupanamba social relations were marked by gentleness and cooperation. If a quarrel broke out, those involved might burn down their own houses out of shame at losing their self-control. An individual who had displayed anger might even commit suicide by eating earth. They received guests with tears and weeping, and any member of the community who had been absent was greeted upon his return with lamentation. This is Encyclopedia Britannica. Who am I to say, but I'll tell you one thing. The anthropological naivete of that paragraph is, is astounding. When you say, uh, if a quarrel broke out, those involved might burn down their own houses out of shame at losing their self-control. That is the imposition of Western mental uh, concepts on this system in the most egregious way. That's not what it was about at all. It was the fear of utter chaos within the tribe. It wasn't shame because they'd lost self-control. Self-control, my God, that has nothing to do with these situations. Anyway, I'm not here to criticize the editors of Encyclopedia Britannica. Who am I? But I'm just saying there's a little bit of naivete in that. But nevertheless, there was a sense of, here you see gentleness and cooperation and so on, that Montaigne obviously picked up on that. What is the price for that? Let me read the other paragraph from the Encyclopedia Britannica, with which I will quibble less. Not much is known of their social organization, parentheses, ha-ha. Warfare among the Tupanamba groups was constant, and indeed their religious and social values centered upon warfare and cannibalism. The Tupanamba relished human flesh as well as the prestige and political power associated with cannibalistic rites. Captives were well treated within the village until the appointed time for killing and eating them. The clubbing of a victim and the distribution of his flesh were accompanied by drinking, singing, and dancing. Now, the reason I'm bringing this in is because we're talking about the origin of the, one of the important myths at the heart of Western humanism. And we're talking about how profoundly mistaken it's the, the original, the, the observers of the original phenomenon were about what it really meant. But that's not the issue. The issue is that Shakespeare saw it within 10 years without the benefit of the anthropology. Shakespeare didn't go there. He didn't meet the the members of the tribe. He didn't travel to foreign lands. He didn't read the anthropological uh, data, etc., etc. He he had spent his life studying, exploring in his own way human emotionality, and uh, he knew on the face of it that it was an empty dream. 
you will not be surprised that uh, the Tupanamba tribe, uh, among many others, was of some interest to René Girard in his uh, arriving at his understanding of the origin of culture. And there's a little passage from Girard's uh, work commenting on the Tupanamba. I'll read it to you. War was endemic among this people, Girard writes, who made it a practice to devour all enemies they could lay their hands on, literally devour. However, their cannibalism assumed two distinct forms. An enemy killed in the course of battle was eaten on the spot without further ado. These are the, these are the ones that Montaigne was thought were the noble savages. Outside the community and its laws, there, were no place, there was no place for ritual. Undifferentiated violence held sway. The ritual form of cannibalism was reserved for enemies who were brought alive to the village. Uh, by the way, Girard argues that the purpose of war for the Tupanambas was to provide prisoners of war for the ritual cannibalism because you needed a supply for the rituals and that the wars had no... See, most people would turn it the other way around. They would say, uh, we're having these rituals in order, to, in, in order to placate the gods so we'll win in battle or something. So the ritual supports the war. Girard says the other way around. The war, purpose of the war was to, was to get prisoners who will become the sacrificial victims for the ritual. So he goes on. The ritual form of cannibalism was reserved for enemies who were brought alive to the village. These prisoners lived for months and sometimes years on intimate terms with the men who would one day devour them. They participated in their captors' daily activities, married into their families. Much the same relationship existed for a while between themselves and their sacrificers as their sacrificers maintain among themselves. Girard posits that in order for a sacrificial victim to really uh, accomplish the, uh, the task in a sacrificial episode, he must be both a member and not a member of the tribe. And uh, to have a foreigner come in and be, and be assimilated somewhat, but always remain outside and available for the sacrificial episode should it be required. To tip a hat to Shakespeare, who knew within 10 years that that kind of myth was a, was a shallow hope. And in fact, it's continued to ferment in the Western imagination for a low of these centuries. So Gonzalo goes on to say, all things in common nature should produce without sweater endeavor Treason, felony, sword, pike, knife, gun, or need of any engine would I not have. But nature should bring forth of its own kind all foist and all abundance to feed my innocent people. Gonzalo had said, uh, no, we, we need no magistrates, uh, we need no learning, no hierarchy, no uh, riches, poverty, service, contract, anything that has that gives form and shape. We need no distinctions, to use the Girardian term. We, we can do away with all these distinctions. This is causing a problem. The reason they're causing a problem is because they have, they're beginning to lose their respectability. And then they cause a problem. The distinction between the social class I'm in and the class just above me is no problem until I stop recognizing it as being fundamental. And then it becomes a social problem because I start competing. See? So the, the fact that we've stopped recognizing them as fundamental, they aren't fundamental, they're empty. But it means that somehow the whole mimetic crisis is about, to, uh, is about to break open. So anyway, he says we can do without those. 
Auden has a funny thing. Again, it comes out of the mouth of, uh, of Caliban about those distinctions. It's Caliban's practicality in a way. The Caliban says, without a despised or dreaded them to turn the back on, there could be no intimate or affectionate us to turn the eye to. Now, get that these are, these are these long sentences again, but it's, uh, the, I enjoy this just because it's funny. I offer this as a way of uh, thanking you for sitting through the thing about the Tupanamas. This is, so this is, this is comic, re- comic relief. Caliban says, There always has been and always will be not only the vertical boundary, the river, on this side of which initiative and honesty stroll arm in arm wearing sensible clothes, and beyond which is a savage elsewhere swarming with contagious diseases. But also, so a, so a vertical boundary, the river, but also, he says, a horizontal counterpart, the railroad, above which houses stand in their own grounds, each equipped with a garage and a beautiful woman, sometimes with several, and below which huddled shacks provide a squeezing shelter to collarless herds who eat blemange and have never said a witty thing. Make the case as special as you please, he says. Take the tamest congregation or the wildest faction. See, any human group will create these distinctions. The tamest congregation, just take a Quaker meeting or take the Shining Path gorillas. It's the nature of a human being. So anyway, make the case as special as you please. Take the tamest congregation or the wildest faction. Take, say, a college. What river and railroad did for the grosser instance, lawn and corridor do for the more refined, dividing the tender who value from the tough who measure. That is to say, the the humanities from the applied sciences. (laughs) This is written as one who's in the humanities, right? The tender who value from the tough who measure. The superstitious who still sacrifice to causation from the heretics who have already reduced the worship of truth to bare description, and so creating the academic field to be guarded with umbrella and learned periodical against the trespass of any unqualified stranger, not a whit less jealously than the game preserve is protected from the poacher by the unamiable shotgun. For without these prohibitive frontiers, we should never know who we were or what we wanted. That is, that's Girard's understanding of, of mimesis exactly. We, without that, we don't know what we want. Our desire needs to be mimetically focused. Without these prohibitive frontiers, we should never know who we were or what we wanted. It is they, the frontiers, who donate to neighborhood all its, all its accuracy and vehemence. It is thanks to them that we do know with whom to associate, make love, exchange recipes and jokes, go mountain climbing, or sit side by side fishing from piers. It is thanks to them, too, that we know against whom to rebel. We can shock our parents by visiting the dives below the railroad tracks. We can amuse ourselves 
on what would otherwise have been a very dull evening indeed in plotting to seize the post office across the river. <laughs> I love Auden's humor. He is so funny. Well, I, I bring that in because, you see, Gonzalo has said, we'll do away with these things. You see, live, live happily. And what Auden's recognizing, what Gerard's recognizing, is that we're lost without the... We simply... We have been trained to play the sociodrama on a... It, the sociodrama is a board game, depending on how you're, whether you're bored by it or you're playing it. And, it's, and we need the structure, some kind of structure, to tell us how we're doing. And Gonzalo had, had said, uh, uh, treason, felony, sword, pike, knife, gun, or need of any engine I would not have. We don't need any of that stuff. And he falls asleep. And the other nobles fall asleep except for Sebastian and Antonio. And finally, the king, Alonso, falls asleep. And immediately, Sebastian says, why don't we kill him? <laughs> this is the thing. This is the, this is the joke Shakespeare's playing on Gonzalo. Gonzalo has this mind filled with this lovey-dovey stuff about how it's going to be. And as soon as he falls asleep, the regicide is set in motion. Antonio says when he first broaches the subject, you see, when he first raised the subject of, of uh, conspiracy or uh, treason, you know, Antonio says, what might worthy Sebastian, oh, what might... Uh... No more. No more. Very coquettish. It's political coquettery, you see. Oh, I was just thinking, oh, no, never mind, never mind. No, no. It's just, just like uh, Cressida. Just like Cressida when she was playing around with Menelaus. Just like Cassius when he was seducing uh, Brutus. It's just like Iago when he's seducing Othello. Oh, ne no, never mind. And yet, Antonio said, and yet, methinks I see it in thy face, what thou shouldst be. The occasion speaks thee, and my strong imagination sees a crown dropping upon thy head. You see, when Hamlet heard those words, he laid waste the kingdom. <laughs> Somebody said, hey, you look like you ought to have a crown on your head. And, and the blood began to flow. It's, the, it's that little mimetic tease. Maybe you should be wearing the crown. What's the crown? They're on a barren island with no hope of return. What's he talking about? It's like the American Indian saying, talking about gold as the yellow rocks that drove white men crazy. What is it? What are they doing? <laughs> the crown. What's he talking about? It's all a mimetic shadow game. Sebastian says, "What?" Sebastian says, "What? Art thou waking?" Antonio, do you not hear me speak? Sebastian, I do, and surely it is a sleepy language, and thou speakest out of thy sleep. This is an irony, you see. Shakespeare realizes they're in a dream world. But it's the, it's the, it's the dream world that's the, in which most people are captured, so we don't see that it's ridiculous, but it's a dream world. And uh, Sebastian says, Thou dost snore distinctly. There's meaning in thy snores. <laughs> Sebastian says, Well, I am standing water to Antonio's, Antonio's the, the pander, you see. Antonio says, I'll teach you how to flow. And Sebastian, do so. To ebb, hereditary sloth instructs me. Meaning that he's the younger brother and he's always learned that uh, his 
You see, his brother would be king, and he would uh, be somewhere else in the hierarchy. So, but now he's suddenly hearing this other voice of the tempter who's saying, hey, Antonio says, oh, if thou but knew how you the purpose cherish whilst thus you mock it, how in stripping it you more invest it. You see, Antonio and Sebastian both have been very scoffing, cynical people. And they scoff at all this, you know. And Antonio is saying, because Shakespeare wants to get this in, that this kind of uh, mocking, is that disdain is a disguised form of desire. Nietzsche talks about this when he talks about resentment. It's a disguised form of desire. Sebastian, thy case, dear friend, shall be my precedent. As thou goddest Milan, I'll come by Naples. Draw thy sword. You see, he's modeling himself. You did it, now I'm going to do it. Remember what Ulysses had said in Troilus and Cressida? The generals disdained by him one step below. He by the next, that next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. It's contagious. The little mimetic rivalry is contagious. We watch it and we want to do it. We want to you, transplant the model to our environment and do it. Antonio says, draw together, and when I rear my hand, do you the like to fall it on Gonzalo. Of course, Ariel comes along and plays music in the ear of Gonzalo and wakes him up, and they discover these two characters with their weapons drawn, and they make up some cock and bull story about beasts and so on. And the whole thing is dispersed. What I would like to call attention to is the double entendre of, in, in the line, draw together. It means, of course, draw your sword. But they have just talked about doing, acting in concert. Draw together, Antonio says, and when I rear my hand, do you the like. This is unanimity. Now, we're just talking about... The numbers don't matter. We're just talking about two. It doesn't matter whether it's two or 200. What matters is, what is the relationship between unanimity and the sacrificial act? And the answer is an intimate one. And it's right there in that phrase, draw together. The two sacrificers are drawn together culturally at the moment they draw together their sword. I think it's, I think it's a revealing little tip-off in the, in the text. Draw together. How do we draw together? We draw together when we draw together. Consult the Gallup poll and see if it isn't so. We draw together when we draw together. When the, when the, you know, when the bombers leave the, runway and when we're going after our enemy we draw together when we draw together now that is a radically different kind of estimation of the human situation than Gonzalo but it's Shakespeare's now what he wants to do is give us some hope but not the kind of hope that Gonzalo is off he wants to give us some hope that has to do with the fundamental reality about who we are Gerard says the, 
the disintegration of myths and rituals and indeed of religious thought in general leads not to genuine demythologizing but to the outbreak of a new sacrificial Christ. Shakespeare has depicted the uh, um, human quandary at the, at the time when Renaissance humanism is falling apart by showing Gonzalo's naive romanticism and showing that very quickly the world seen from that point of view becomes uh, the world of the sacrificial crisis. So Gonzalo began by romanticizing how it was this island was perfect already and we didn't have to have any rules and regulations and everybody went to sleep and suddenly there was a conspiracy to murder the king and so on. And it ended with the words draw together, meaning draw our swords together, but the pun obviously is that we draw together as we draw together. Well, that was, to use this, this sort of upstairs-downstairs uh, analogy, that was the developments as they occurred upstairs among the nobles. In this play, there's a parallel track, which is the same kind of dynamic occurring among the commoners. The upstairs version was bitterly ironical, but it wasn't quite a farce. When we go to the downstairs version, it's a farce. Uh, it consists of Caliban Trinculo, who is the king's fool or jester, and Stefano, who is the butler and given to drink. But we haven't learned much about uh, Caliban, so we have to take his measure first. And I would like to start with something Trinculo says about him when he first uh, sees him. Caliban has hidden, thinking that Trinculo is one of Prospero's uh, spirits that has come to, to uh, make him do the right thing. And so he has hidden and covered himself with his cloak. And Trinculo sees him, recognizes that this is uh, some kind of a monster. And he says, were I in England now, as once I was, and had but this fish painted... He wonders, is this a fish or a man? And had but this fish painted, not a holiday fool there, but would give a piece of silver. There would this monster make a man, meaning financially. Any strange beast there makes a man. When they will not give a droit to relieve a lame beggar, they will lay out ten to see a dead Indian. Well, he's talking, this Shakespeare, talking to his own contemporaries about their current fascination with anything exotic, Caliban later says to Prospero, he says, when thou camest first, thou strokest me and made much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in it and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less that burn by day and night. In other words, when Prospero landed on the island, he too was possessed by this romanticism about the Calibans of the world. And he stroked him and made much of him and so on and so forth. Things have changed, of course, for Prospero now. Uh, Prospero now says to Caliban, thy lying slave whom stripes may move, not kindness, I have used thee filth as thou art with humane care and lodged thee in mine own cell till thou didst seek to violate the honor of my child. So he's absolutely no romantic uh, estimation of Caliban remains. You know that thing about a reactionary as a liberal who's been mugged. 
Well, Prospero is, is, is that to some extent. He has sobered up from any of that romantic idealization. Right after that comment by Prospero, the last one I quoted, uh, Miranda makes the point that uh, she and Prospero taught Caliban language. Uh, they were able to teach him language, but nothing much more than that. And he says, Caliban says, the only good language is done is that it has given me the ability to curse you. So, so much for that uh, quality. Uh, Caliban, by the way, the name Caliban is probably an anagram uh, from the word uh, cannibal. So Shakespeare is perhaps still uh, playing around with uh, Montaigne's fascination with the cannibals from Brazil that were visiting France. Okay, well, there's, uh, that, that's our first introduction to Caliban. When Trinculo finds him, uh, he hides under his, under his cloak with the monster Caliban because a storm is coming. And he doesn't find any other place to hide in the storm. And I think Shakespeare is probably working here a metaphor. You know, the storm for Shakespeare is the, is the social crisis. And it, it is in the social crisis that we tend to uh, affiliate with the Calibans or find them less reprehensible. This speech of Trinculo's ends with that now famous uh, comment. Trinculo says, My best way is to creep under his gabardine. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellow. So it is in the storm that we find the alliance with the Calibans of the world uh, less disagreeable and more expedient. And so Trinculo has made this alliance. Well, of course, this whole thing is not to make too much out of it. It's a great farce. Stefano comes up and he's drunk and drinking away. And he sees, first he sees this, uh, this monster with four legs coming out of the cloak and he uh, is uh, convinced that it is indeed a, a strange monster. Uh, but the head is Caliban. So he uh, takes his bottle of liquor and he says uh, to, to Caliban, open your mouth. Here is that which will give language to you, cat. Open your mouth. So Prospero and Miranda had given Caliban language in their way. And now Stefano is going to give Caliban language in his way, which is he's going to intoxicate him. Uh, he is not going to bring him, try to bring him up from his uh, level by t by uh, teaching him other things. He's simply going to bring him f farther down by intoxicating. Caliban has never had any intoxicant like that before, and he immediately thinks he's in the presence of divinity. He says in an aside, that's a brave God and bears celestial liquor. I, I will kneel to him. And then there's this mock ceremony, a kind of mock ritual where they pass the bottle around and Stefano says, kiss the book, kiss the book, when in fact they're taking a pull on this bottle of liquor. Uh, kiss the book represents uh, a, a version of kiss the cup, which is a kind of a toast, but also it represents the, uh, the pledge that is made sometimes in traditional times. When a pledge was made, the Bible was kissed. You see, you kiss the book. is a, It's like laying your hand on the book. So this is a, a, a farcical kind of convening of their, of their little three-part community. 
kiss the book and they pass it around. So now they are all together and getting drunker and drunker. Remember the point we made when we were studying Trollus and Cressida about uh, using a little passage from the Gospels so when Jesus forbids the Pharisees who have not had a, a, a conversion, a repentance, a metanoia, the Greek word metanoia, he forbids them from stepping into the waters of the Jordan, which are the baptismal waters or what we would call the waters of undifferentiation, where you dissolve all your present, uh, uh, the, the present grid through which you see and experience the world in order to be able to be fresh to it. So Jesus says to them, well, woe to you who step into the waters of undifferentiation without a metanoia. Because to step into the waters of undifferentiation without a metanoia is to court disaster. Uh, because the undifferentiated crisis is resolved sacrificially bl in a bloody way. So there is a, uh, there is a warning. Of course, it, it applies here exactly. They are dissolved. They are stepping into the waters of undifferentiation via the liquor. Well, Caliban is completely given over to his uh, devotion now to Stefano, the, the bearer of the liquor. He says, I'll show thee every fertile inch of the isle, and I will kiss thy foot. I prithee, be my God. I swear myself thy subject. He says, I'll show thee the best springs. I'll pluck thee berries. I'll fish for thee and get thee wood enough, a plague upon that tyrant that I serve. I'll bear him no more sticks, but follow thee, thou wondrous man. Now, there's a lot of irony in this, of course, because when Caliban had talked about what happened when Prospero first came to the island, he said, quote, Then I loved thee and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren places, and fertile. In other words, Caliban fell for Prospero in the same way that he's falling for Stefano. He's, he's ecstatic about his new master, and contemptuous of his old master. He's an inveterate slave, an unreconstructive slave, so he will constantly be seeking a new master and always be momentarily uh, enthusiastic about the new master and contemptuous of the old. But as soon as he finds out that masters are masters, he will be contemptuous again and looking for a new one. And that's the kind of picture of Caliban, I think, that Shakespeare presenting it. Stefano, who's the butler and not used to being in charge of things, takes to it quite well. Except Caliban is the only one who knows the island. So he says to him, lead the way. Now, Stefano is the, is the official leader of this, uh, of this uh, band of three. But Caliban knows the way, so he says, lead the way. And Caliban is ecstatic. Farewell, master. Farewell, farewell. No more dams I'll make for fish, nor fetch in firing at requiring, nor scrape trenching, nor wash dish. Ban, ban, ca Caliban has a new master, get a new man. Take this job and shove it. <laughs> he, is, he is ecstatic. And it concludes with this. Freedom, high day, high day, freedom, freedom, high day, freedom. And one of the strong themes in the last part of this play is the theme of freedom, legitimate freedom. What does freedom consist of? Now, for Caliban, freedom consists of 
the removal of any imposition. That is to say, freedom is a holiday where you have, in which you have no uh, responsibility. You have no duty. That's freedom. Freedom, high day is a synonym for holiday. Freedom is a holiday, that's all, pure and simple. Jan Kott, we quoted the Polish critic Jan Kott last week, he says about this scene, he says, to me this passage is a Shakespearean book of Genesis. The history of mankind begins, Caliban has mistaken a drunkard for God. <laughs> and is completely convinced that he has been liberated, you see. He is convinced that this is a liberation. I want to, without making too much of this uh, reference to High Day, which is a reference to Holiday, I want to share with you something uh, from Girard. He writes, As the ritualistic aspects of the festival dwindle, it degenerates into a communal letting off of steam, the very idea of the festival held dear by modern scholars. In other words, modern anthropologists look at these uh, traditional festivals and regard them as an opportunity to let off steam. Gerard says they are, they are undoubtedly not that. They are uh, vague, attenuated remembrances of a sacrificial crisis which resulted in a murder. And they are being repeated in order to uh, renew the social benefits of the sacrificial act without repeating the actual murder, simply repeating it rit ritualistically. But knowing that that's the background, or if we make the assumption that that is the background, then the festival takes on something of a, uh, of a more serious nature. One has to attend to it more closely. George goes on, the joyous, peaceful facade of the deritualized festival, stripped of any reference to a surrogate victim and its unifying power, rests on the framework of a sacrificial crisis attended by reciprocal violence. That is why genuine artists can still sense that tragedy lurks somewhere behind the bland festivals, the tawdry utopianism of the leisure society. The more trivial, vulgar, and banal holidays become, the more acutely one senses the approach of something uncanny and terrifying. The theme of holiday gone wrong dominates Fellini's film and has recently surfaced in various different forms in the work of many other artists. The holiday gone wrong serves nicely to symbolize decadence. As an artistic motif, it is rich in fruitful paradoxes. What is more, it is a very real part of the scene in any decadent society. I keep thinking about this film, Cabaret, which is the holiday gone wrong, decadence uh, on the eve of the, uh, of the Nazi triumph in Germany. Well, all of that is to say that, in a way, Shakespeare has, intuits that. He sees that these people who are sliding towards a sacrificial crisis, the, this is a farce, these are laughable characters, but as they slide toward what he will demonstrate as a sacrificial crisis, they think it's a holiday. 
freedom is a holiday it means you can do whatever you want to do you don't the rules are gone you can just do your own thing what the heck and that's freedom and it slides towards something very dangerous i try to bring in my little contemporary things when i can uh i should put the other way around i try to keep as many out as i can <laughs> they there's so many of them let me say this. This right after Stefano says freedom high day high day freedom freedom high day freedom. Stefano says, "Oh brave monster, lead the way." So Caliban is leading the way. I was thinking about that when I read the paper on Monday. There was an article in the Times on Monday about uh, the Romanian situation. You remember last week they uh Romanian president-elect sent in the miners to uh, do to essentially brutalize and terrorize the, the city dweller. But it's on the subject to, of two things, old brave monster lead the way and the holiday gone wrong. Only in this case, it's the holiday gone wrong manipulated by the political leader. The Times piece said that uh, uh, Iliescu said that they called these uh, miners peaceful citizens, and the paper, the journalist then says, such a bald denial of facts was viewed here as a sign of how deeply the government is now beholden to and perhaps even intimidated by the miners. To accommodate the miners and to keep them busy, the government gave them a place to stay and a place to watch the World Cup soccer game. Uh, in other words, this trip to the city was a holiday, really. was first and foremost, a kind of a holiday where you can do anything, including beat up people who represent the opposition. Uh, and when it's all over with, you continue the holiday by, by watching the World Cup soccer. And it's an example of letting Caliban lead the parade, letting the, the brute forces of... The Caliban, could be, the Caliban in Shakespeare's play could be seen as the personification of the mob the mentality of the mob. Later on, in Act 3, Scene 2, the same three are together, Stefano, Trinculo, and Caliban. Stefano, who is the, now the titular leader of the three, says to Caliban, Thou shalt be my lieutenant monster, or my standard, meaning my standard bearer. And Trinculo says, Your lieutenant, if you list, he's no standard. Now, one of the things I want to argue is that Shakespeare relies much more on puns than we realize. Uh, puns, you know, are not the, are, are not the most well-respected of the literary techniques. And so people tend to overlook Shakespeare's reliance upon them. I think they also overlook T.S. Eliot's reliance upon them. But in any case, I don't want to overlook them. There are a number of them that I think are very important. And this is one, well, this is not an important one, but it's one that calls our attention to the fact that he uses them. Your lieutenant, if you list, he's no standard, meaning... He can't stand up, you see. He's no standard. He's, he's no stander. He can't stand up straight. And he says, your lieutenant, if you list, meaning if you please, but also if you, Stefano, who, who himself is drunk, are listing to one side, <laughs> you see. <coughs> so there, we have three here, Stefano, Trinculo, and Calvin. It doesn't take long for Shakespeare's uh, application of the triangle to take uh, effect. And Caliban begins by, you see, uh, Caliban says to Stefano, 
Let me lick thy shoe. And his next line is, I'll serve him not, he's not valiant, pointing to Trinculo. And so his devotion to Stefano increases as his contempt for Trinculo uh, increases. Finally, uh, the, there's a controversy that develops between them that is, that is exacerbated by Ariel. Ariel comes along, and these three are talking together. And Ariel, every once in a while, who is invisible, Ariel says, thou liest. And they attribute that to, uh, to Trinculo or whoever. And, they, and so there's a lot of confusion. And suddenly, the, the, the hostilities between them are manifest. And Stefano strikes, strikes Trinculo. And Caliban is delighted. Ha, 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 he says, beat him enough. After a little time, I'll beat him too. So it looks as though this thing is just going to break down right there. However, they find a way to draw together. Remember, that's, what the, that's the way you resolve the sacrificial crisis. You draw together. They reconvene their little three-member community by finding a common object of contempt. And it happens to be the official political leader of the realm, Prospero. So they agree that they will kill Prospero and take over the island. And upon agreeing to that, they unite again in perfect harmony. And they go off singing all together the farcical equivalent of the national anthem. Floutum and scoutum, scoutum and floutum, thought is free. Uh, Shakespeare is hardly, I mean, this, this is the epitome of Shakespearean irony. Floutum and scoutum, scoutum and floutum, thought is free. They have achieved their cultural unanimity by deciding who it is they're going to kill. And happily, they go off singing. Except, Caliban says, that's not the tune. Meaning, the words are okay, but we're not singing it to the right tune. Ariel comes along and supplies the music, and the music is on the pipe and the drum. And as soon as that music is heard, Trinculo says, this is the tune of our catch. There are a lot of references to music in this play, and very few of them have any specificity, so we don't know what the music consists of. Scholars have, have, uh, have retraced some of these things, but by and large, we don't know. But here, Shakespeare makes it clear. We're talking about pipe and drum. Now, pipe and drums are marching music. They go with the... They, they accompany the marching of the regiment. And I think there's a tremendous irony here. Because when, when Caliban and his cohorts sing, Flautum, Scoutum, Scoutum, Flautum, Thought is Free, they think, you see, they are singing what to them seems like acid rock music, heavy metal music, rap music. What Shakespeare is inviting us to see is that there's, there is a, the tiniest moment of transition after which what seemed at first like heavy metal music becomes what it was destined to become all along, which is regimentation. How long... You see, what, 
how long does it take to go from heavy metal to skinheads to regimentation to fascism? You see what I'm saying? Shakespeare, and that's a contemporary spectrum, but Shakespeare, I think, is playing around with that. We suddenly realize this is marching music, military marching music, and these are the very people who just a moment ago were celebrating the fact that they would never be regimented again. And there they go, in the most bestial form of regimentation. There is a moment of pathos here. Caliban, when he hears this music, he says, Be not afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twanging instruments will hum about my ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after a long sleep will make me sleep again. And then in dreaming, the clouds me thought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me. That's when I waked, I cried to dream again. It's a kind of pathos of Caliban has been hearing Ariel's music for lo these past 12 years. And uh, it scared him at first, but then he found out that it didn't hurt, you see. And uh, then he, it, it, it awakened some longing in him. It made him want to go to sleep. And then he dreamed that riches were about to fall, and he would wake up and, and cry to dream again. We, too, cry to dream again, and we sometimes ask Caliban's help in that respect, or at least that's how Auden looked at it. I want to quote to you here that passage, a passage from Auden's See in the Mirror in which Caliban is talking to the audience. I quoted from this same long, long speech last uh, session. Caliban says, uh, sooner or later you'll, show, you'll ask either Ariel or myself to save you. And I must warn you that when you do, we will be obliged to do what you ask. So be careful. Caliban says, release us, you will beg. Release us. Now, this he's putting words in our mouth. He says, this is what you moderns will, this is how you will try to put us to work, put me, Caliban, to work. Release us from our minor role. Carry me back, master, to the cathedral town where the cannons run through the water meadows with butterfly nets and the old women keep sweet shops in the cobbled side streets. Or back to the upland mill town, gunpowder and plush, with its grope movie and its pool room lit by gas. Carry me back to the days before my wife had put on weight, back to the years when beer was cheap and the rivers really froze in winter. Pity me, Captain. Pity a poor old stranded sea salt whom an unlucky voyage has wrecked on the desolate mahogany coast of this bar with nothing left him but his big mustache. Give me my passage home. Let me see that harbor once again, just as it was before I learned the bad words. Oh, Cupid, Cupid, howls the whole dim chorus. Take us home. We have never felt really well in this climate of distinct idea. Oh, take us home. Take us home with you, strong and smelling one home to your promiscuous pastures where the minotaur of authority is just a roly-poly ruminant and nothing is at stake. Cal Auden's Caliban says, that's what you will 
come to me. That's when you ask my help. And he says, beware because I will be obliged to do what you ask. He says, in that very moment, I shall have no option but to be faithful to my oath of service and instantly transport you, not indeed to any cathedral town or mill town or harbor or hillside or jungle or other specific Eden, but directly to that downright state itself. Here you are. This is it. Cones of extinct volcanoes rise up abruptly from the lava plateau, fissured by chasms pitted with hot springs, from which steam rises without interruption straight up into the windless, rarefied atmosphere. Here and there a geyser erupts without warning, spouts furiously for a few seconds, and as suddenly subsides. So that great romantic longing to have Caliban take us back to that wonderful play really gets us taken to this desolate moonscape of a volcanic world. Robert Penn Warren has a, has a much shorter and in some ways more charming little version of that. It goes like this. Turn backward, turn backward, O time in your flight, and make me a child again just for tonight. Good Lord, he's wet the bed. Come bring a light. 